Sometime after the birth of Jesus, Magi came from the east and arrived in Jerusalem, and they asked, where was the newborn king of the Jews? They had seen his star rising. And there's so many questions uh, that we could ask about this, uh, about what happened with these Magi. Where did they come from? Who, who were they? What was this star? How did they know that this was indicating the birth of a newborn king of the Jews? And that last part, we have a little bit of context for it, in that, you know, we know in the Old Testament there was prophecies, of course, of a, of a great king that would arise from the line of David, who would have a kingdom that would extend to the ends of the earth. But this prophecy had filtered beyond just the Israelites, and there were many other peoples who began to know about this prophecy and believe in it. And we know this from some um, Roman historians. So, for example... Tacitus, he wrote, people were generally persuaded in the faith of ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail and that from Judea was to come the master and ruler of the world. Pretty interesting. Suetonius wrote, it was an old and constant belief throughout the East that by indubitably certain prophecies, the Jews were to attain the highest power. And so this is a background that was existing in, in the consciousness of people. Now, um, who exactly were the Magi? We often we call them the three kings, but that's probably not true. It's legends that have uh, accumulated over time, um, some of them based actually in Old Testament scripture, like our first reading from Isaiah and the Psalm. These are um, speaking about a time when foreign rulers will come and empty their treasuries uh, to, for Jerusalem, and they will come and, and, and worship the God of Israel. Uh, likely, these um, magi, well, the easiest translation is wise men, they likely had some, though, affiliation with royalty. Often, kings would have a group of advisors, and they were often called magi, wise men, and they knew a lot about a lot of different things. They knew about philosophy and history, uh, but especially they were valuable because they were believed to be able to interpret omens and signs as to what the god or gods were up to and what would happen. And, and actually, there's um, two of our heroes from the Old Testament became magi for other kings. Do you remember Joseph, the son of Jacob? Remember, he was in Egypt and Pharaoh had a dream and Joseph was able to interpret the dream. And he was actually made a prince because of that. He had been part of, basically, Pharaoh's advisors. And similarly, Daniel, when he was in captivity in Babylon, he was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so this was especially the value of these, of these magi. Um, so they were studying the night sky, and they were seeing something that indicated this. We don't know exactly what it was, but... To me, the best theory is laid out in a documentary called The Star of Bethlehem, and you can stream that on very different, various streaming services. And basically, what the uh, producers of the documentaries have done is they've taken all the biblical evidence, all the other historical evidence, and they have added that to astronomical evidence. That is, there are computer programs where you can punch in any day, even thousands of years ago, and any location, and it will show you what people were seeing in the night sky. And so you guys know, of course, the night sky changes. 
Right? The, the position of the constellations and stars and planets, and there's different con conjunctions, there are all kinds of movements. This is how a star can appear to be rising. This is how it could follow them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so this amazing, um, I think, work of sleuthing to, to piece together things that indicated royalty and Judea and things like that. Most importantly, though, what we can, what we can learn about the Magi is that they were seekers of the truth. That God was speaking to them and directing them through, through the cosmos, through their pagan religion. Um, and they were open to this. They saw the sign. It wasn't, wasn't proof. It was a sign. But they followed the sign to where it led. They were seeking the truth. And this is true of all ages and of all times. God is always revealing himself in different ways. Through nature, through, through our experiences of our life. And if we're open to that, we can see the signs. And we can walk in the path that he wants us to walk on. One of the great American novelists of the 20th century is Walker Percy. And he received numerous awards for his work. And he came from a wealthy but very troubled family just outside of New Orleans. Um, when he was only a year old, his grandfather committed suicide. When he was 13, his father committed suicide. Two years later, his mother died in a car crash. So here he was, 15. He was an orphan. His family had been agnostic. They had no religion in their home. But he went to live with his uncle, Will. And Will was a faithful Catholic. He got introduced to the Catholic faith by Will. Um, but he himself didn't, didn't, wasn't that interested at that time. He was very bright, and he wanted to become a doctor, so he went off to college, to med school, and he was doing an internship when he contracted tuberculosis, and he got very sick. In fact, it took him a few years to recover. But actually, it was during his sickness that he got to reevaluate his whole life, and indeed, the meaning of everything. He started to read a lot. He read Kierkegaard. He read uh, the great novelist Dostoevsky. And he even read some philosophy, including Thomas Aquinas. And he came to the conclusion of all that to a belief in God and in Jesus Christ. And he converted the Catholic faith. And the same year, he married his wife, Mary Bernice. And then he decided that he wasn't supposed to be a doctor. He was supposed to be a writer. And he, a very brilliant writer he turned out to be. And he realized when he went through this conversion that he had a, he had a religion before. It just didn't involve God. He had a kind of dominant worldview that was guiding his life. And he called it scientific humanism. And it was this belief that human beings of our great knowledge, our progress in science, would eventually be able to create a kind of utopia. We could solve all the world's problems. This is kind of what life is supposed to be about. That there is a kind of uh, a morality based on this idea of human rights, which actually came from Christianity, but he had, wasn't aware of that at the time. But he decided that this wasn't good enough, and, it sh and no one should be satisfied with that as an explanation for everything. This is what he wrote. He said, life is too much trouble and far too strange to arrive at the end of it and then to be asked what you have to make of it and have to answer scientific humanism. That won't do. A poor show. Life is a mystery. Love is a delight. Therefore, I take it as axiomatic that one should settle for nothing less than the infinite mystery and the infinite delight, which is God. In fact, I demand it. I refuse to settle for anything less. I don't see why anyone should settle for less than Jacob, who actually grabbed a hold of God and would not let go until God identified himself and blessed him. 
I love that image. This is what someone who really wants to know the truth, wants to understand things, to grab a hold and not let go until it's revealed. Now, many of um, Percy's novels feature a main character, uh, usually a kind of middle-aged or or younger man who is very successful professionally, who has a lot of money, but who's also very unhappy. And these characters tend to try to distract themselves through various passing pleasures until they encounter the possibility of true love. Usually it's a good woman whom they encounter that, that begins to get them to question their way of life. And then Percy always includes a kind of strange, really religious character, a very minor character, but someone who has some important interaction with the main character. And I think there was some of Percy's own, own story in, in the stories he was writing. And the thing about Percy, he was like the Magi. He was the seeker of truth. And even though he had found Christ, he, he knew his life and all of our lives are a continuing journey until we meet Christ face to face until we have the, the fullness of God, the experience of God in heaven. I'm using for the first time this weekend for my homily notes a, a Kindle. I don't know if Amazon's going to pay me for this mention, but anyways. Um, and um, it's one of many amazing devices developed in the last 15 years. Uh, to me, one of the most useful of new technological devices is the GPS, whether it was you know, on the older separate systems or the ones we have in our phones now. And I remember, I'm, I'm very directionally challenged, how hard it was sometimes trying to find a, a place that I'd never been to using a map. And some of you are older remember how that was. You know, you had to get the map out. And... But then we get this amazing technology, these GPSs, and you, you know, you just punch in the destination, you're, and you're driving, and, and this lady's voice is telling you, turn right here, merge in 1,000 feet. And I kind of had a sense of what it was like to be married. So... <laughs> Now, the thing is, these are amazing. These will give you turn-by-turn directions, but, but you have to make sure you put in the right destination. Now, the Magi had their destination set on God, and so they were excited to find the newborn king. But if you listen carefully to the gospel, most of the people were not happy about this news. First of all, we find out that Herod, Herod is greatly troubled. Why wouldn't Herod be excited that Israel's hopes, right, this prophecy that goes back a thousand years to King David, why wouldn't he be happy for the birth of the Messiah? Well, because he had become king, he was a puppet of the Romans, but still he had a lot of power, a lot of money, and he wanted to pass his kingdom on to one of his sons. And so he saw this Messiah then as a rival. And in fact, this will be true of all of us, that if we set our GPS on ourselves, uh, Rather than God, we, we can come to really hate God because God is a rival. God is a rival to basically ourselves. More curious, though, is Matthew says that all of Jerusalem was greatly troubled by this news. Pope Benedict, in his book on covering the infancy narratives in the Gospels, speculates that the people in Jerusalem knew Herod's character and that this was going to lead to some kind of war or violence uh, but he also makes a more general point. He says that what, from the lofty perspective of faith is a star of hope, from the perspective of daily life is merely a disturbance, a cause for concern and fear. It is true. God disturbs our comfortable day-to-day existence. A lot of times, even though we know our life isn't perfect, it's, it's comfortable to us. And 
The fact is, when God really comes into our lives, oftentimes he upends things. And that's something that we don't want to experience. So the Magi then make their way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem where they find the baby Jesus with his mother Mary and they present to him these very valuable gifts. All of us know them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's why we say there's three of them, of the Magi, but there's three gifts. There could have been more Magi. These gifts are not only very valuable, they're very symbolic, and before they gave the gifts, they prostrated themselves. That is, they fell on their faces in front of the baby Jesus, which is an act of adoration and worship. These gifts, we, we who are all the Gentile nations that have been gathered into the covenant with Abraham, who have been worshiping the Messiah now for 2,000 years, we have been using the Magi's gifts in our worship of God. So in the, in the Mass, the sacred vessels often have gold that contain the bread that becomes the body of Christ, the wine that becomes the blood of Christ. We use incense at solemn Masses and during Eucharistic adoration. And myrrh is an aromatic which we mix into uh, olive oil, which is makes sacred chrism, and which the bishop blesses, which is used in a confirmation, it's used in baptism, and it's used in the ordination of priests. Worshiping, coming to Mass, worshiping God, is a way of resetting our spiritual GPS. And so that's why it's so important that you come at least once a week. Because throughout the course of the week, there are so many different um, tasks that you have to do, responsibilities you have, distractions that you get, that it can get a little disorienting and you can get your priorities a little bit out of whack. But coming together and worshiping God kind of reorients you. Right? It, 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 putting God first, everything else falls into place. And there's an interesting thing that, um, I don't know if you've heard of Jordan Peterson, I don't know what you think of him, but I like to listen to some of his, his conversations that he has with people. And he actually has this point that I've heard him make several times. And he says that uh, this, all the research shows that if you think about yourself a lot, if you're high in self-consciousness, that is associated with negative emotions. This highly correlates with negative emotions. If we're constantly thinking about ourselves and being self-conscious. Right? So in a sense, worshiping, putting our attention instead on the Lord, what he is saying, what he is doing, what he is asking us to do, um, delivers us from that, the narrow confines of that prison. Now, we always questions about, about what to do and will God guide us, but as long as we do set our GPS on God, he will give us the directions, maybe not when we want to, but he, he does, and in different ways. He did it for the Magi. So first, he was guiding them through the night sky and, and the appearance of the heavenly bodies. Then when they arrived in Jerusalem and they seemed stuck, how does God guide them? Through the scriptures. Herod has the scholars consult the scriptures that say the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then after they go to Bethlehem and they're going to make their return trip, what does God do? He speaks to them directly and personally in a dream, warning them not to go back to Herod. And so we just see an example of the many different ways that God guides his people. So we have for ourselves examples, and let us be like them, like the Magi and like Walker Percy, 
who set our spiritual GPS on God. God who will guide us along our journey to the newborn King. Come, let us adore him.